near Hardesty, a car accident, four people were killed in that accident. It was all of one family. And so the mother of the daughter and also those were her two grandchildren. She's been coming to Alpha. And her name is Ella Vance. So we're going to pray this morning for Ella. There's a big funeral on Saturday. I'm going to officiate. It'll be at Crossroads Church. That's how many people they're anticipating coming. So let's just pray for this uh, situation. It's, um, you know, it's very heartrending when you lose all of your living family members. Very painful. So I am so thankful that we have a family in our church that has befriended Ella, and uh, they have walked with her through this moment and uh, are just there for her. So it's really awesome that way. So let's stand. We're going to read Psalm 30. And I want to just point out to you that though there's weeping that endures for a night, joy comes in the morning. You know, there are sorrows in this world, but joy does come. So let's read the psalm together. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the remains of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I'm silent, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. And Father, we thank you that your word is filled with amazing words of hope and comfort. And I pray for Ella. I pray for her through this season of tremendous loss and shock that you will walk with her that you will instruct her in your ways that you will comfort her heart father i pray today that you will be with her not even during this um, moment of uh, memorial funeral service but lord even beyond that that you will walk with her even in the night seasons that eventually the tears will end And joy will come because your presence will enrich your soul. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray as well today that you will hear our cry. Your word says here, when when we felt like we could stand, when we felt secure, when we said we'd never be shaken, when we had experienced your favor, but we recognize when you do hide your face, we're in trouble. And so I pray today, Lord, that we will move past a sense maybe of indifference or complacency or apathy. And Lord, may we respond to you. Lord, help us not to live an accommodating life, a compromised life. Lord, I just pray today that we will hear your word to the church at Laodicea. May we see the subtleties and the nuances of even our culture and the similarities of an affluent culture that so often seduces us into living an accommodating life. 
And it's really a defeated life. So I pray today that we will experience the fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace, the fullness of your joy in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, we're in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the last part of the chapter. Some of you may know the story of King David, a ruler of Israel, about 1000 B.C., David actually, you know, commanded a woman to come to him who was married to someone else, slept with her, impregnated her. And then when he found out that she was pregnant, sent her husband into one of the most difficult military engagements, which cost him his life. And David knew he was doing that. Now, how do you approach someone who is a king who has all power. How do you confront an injustice of that magnitude? God spoke to a man by the name of Nathan, one of his spokespersons, his prophets. Nathan went to David. Now, how how are you going to come at this? So Nathan tells David a parable. The parable goes something like this. He said there was a rich man who had many sheep, great flocks. Their, Their wealth was measured by how many flocks they had. And he had a a neighbor come his way, someone from a distance came his way, and he was going to provide hospitality, which in the ancient world was a very significant thing. The Bible says that he had a servant who also had a family, and they had one little lamb that was treated like part of their family. Rather than take one of his many sheep, he took the little lamb that belonged to his servant and provided that for the course of meal for this, this um, friend of his from a distance. And David was so incensed by the sense of injustice of the situation, you know, because Nathan said, what should we do with this guy? David said he should die. And then Nathan turned to him and said, you're that man. And that, at that moment, God's spirit so convicted David that he, the Bible says, he repented of his sin. He recognized He was deeply at fault for not only committing adultery, but for also facilitating the murder of this woman's um, husband. You know, it's amazing what sin really does to us. As a matter of fact, uh, the very nature of sin blinds us to the truth about ourselves. How many know that's the truth? You know, it's a lot easier to see other people's faults, a lot harder to see our own. You know, we have to live with ourselves. And so... We do elaborate self-justifying. We rationalize. You know, it's just easier to see the problem. And that's why in most marriage conflicts, the problem is always the other person. Does anybody know that? It's always the other person. They're the problem. You know, because we don't see ourselves as the problem because we're kind of blind to some of the issues in our own soul. The seductive nature of sin is such that we don't realize how hideous and ugly it is before God. And how it impacts not only others, but also ourselves. I will say this, that sin always diminishes us. Sin diminishes us as a person. It affects our personhood. It affects our sense of who we are. We may not recognize it at the time. I think, you know, we we diagnose a lot of people in our medical model in our culture today. We say this person's got this problem, this person's got that problem. But we rarely take a look at what's the root cause of, What's creating this in our lives? You know, 
I'm not saying that all depression is a result of sin, but I'm going to say this. There's a lot of depression that's a result of sin, and we're just not addressing the sin issue, so therefore we're just medicating. It's the truth. We're not dealing with the issues in our own life. We're not courageous enough, or maybe we're just not insightful enough, or possibly we've been deceived and we're blinded to the issue in our own soul. And that's why Jesus said that there's something about truth that can help us get set free. Because if we don't know the truth about something, we live in self-denial. We live in, you know, we live in a blinded condition. We, don't, we can't address what we don't know exists, right? It's really hard to deal with something when you don't know it's a problem. And so sin is not only destructive, not only de- de- deceives us, but it blinds us and eventually it binds us. It enslaves us. And we don't even know we're living in bondage. We're just not free. That's why Jesus said to the Jews when he was speaking to a number of them in his day, he said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now we know that truth is not just information, it's also a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus comes to set us free. And Jesus said a little later, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's a very powerful statement. You want to talk about addictions for a minute? There it is, right there. When we knowingly do the wrong things or even unknowingly do some things, we can actually find ourselves in slavery. That's what drug addiction is about. That's what chemical addiction is about. These things that we're doing that we think is going to provide a measure of pleasure eventually enslaves us. And no longer are we just you know, experiencing pleasure. I remember years ago, I, I went to a, a seminar for, on, on alcoholism. And it says, you know, first of all, people drink to enjoy life but eventually, the, when the drinking becomes a problem in a person's life, eventually they drink to escape from life, and then eventually they drink to die. You know, that's where it gets to. So there's a level of enslavement that moves down a track. So we need to understand that the nature of sin is such that it's self-deceiving and it's self-destructive to ourselves. It diminishes us. It has a negative impact on the people around us. It affects those we love, and ultimately, it affects our relationship with God. So one of the marks of godly character is how you and I are going to respond to what I'll call a justifiable criticism and rebuke. In other words, how do we respond when someone corrects us? This is a highly offended and sensitive society. You can hardly tell anybody anything they're doing wrong without them getting offended. Isn't that the truth? Come on now. That is the truth. A number of years ago... Uh, Matt Redman, who is a well-known Christian artist, this one he was beginning, he was in his church, they were in a worship band like we have here, and the pastor said to the group, he said, you know, there's a problem with you guys. You've, you, you've moved away from worshiping God, you guys are just performing. You've gone into a performance mode. And the, the musicians were so offended by what the pastor said, they all left the church, except Matt Redman. Matt Redman actually took to heart what his pastor said, began to say, God, if that's true about me, you know, change something inside of me. And then Matt Redman wrote a song, and you and I sing it often. And it comes, the song is, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, Jesus. He wrote that as a response to the rebuke he received. And how many know that's a powerful message? 
That actually came via a rebuke. How many think it's interesting to have the backstory of some of the songs that we're singing sometimes? They're very powerful. And so Matt Redman later on became a well-known, acclaimed Christian artist, but this was actually his first song, and it came out of a rebuke. He had to change what he was doing because he was in a performance mode. And he moved from a performance mode to a worship mode and it changed his life and it changed his ministry and he now sings and, and, and does music for the honor and glory of God. So we know that rebuke and correction are painful, but they are absolutely necessary if we're going to grow in our Christian journey. Do you know that's true? We don't like it. I never enjoy getting rebuked, but you know what? It's it made me think. It's made me make some changes. Dr. Paul Brandt, who is the form, foremost expert, a medical expert on leprosy, says this, pain serves a definitive purpose in our lives. How many here go, I really like pain? None of us do, unless you're mac, 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 what is it, that, uh, masochistic. You know, if you're, if you're, some people are a little distorted, they really like pain. But generally speaking, the average person tries to avoid pain. Isn't that true? But yet pain serves a definitive purpose in our lives. He says, leprosy patients lose their fingers and toes, not because the disease causes decay, but precisely because they lack the ability to experience pain. They just don't feel anything. And what happens then is, you know, nothing is warning them when water's too hot or a hammer handle is splintered. Accidental self-abuse is what's destroying their bodies. So think about it. I've thought about this. What happens if we'd never experienced pain? We'd be walking along one day and just drop dead. Because a lot of times pain is an indicator in your body that something's remiss and then we can correct it. But if we don't pay attention to the pain in our body and we ignore it, eventually it's going to cause greater problems. And so pain is a signal to let us know there's a problem. And actually, I've discovered something in our lives because I've worked with people for a long time now. Pain is a great motivator for change. How many know that's true? And when you hurt enough, Many times you go, I just can't keep doing this. I've got to do something different. I've got to make a change. And so pain is a high motivating factor in change in our lives. Well, in the same way, uh, sin causes issues in our lives. And let me give you some of the background of maybe what some of the things that sin does. And it may be very insidious because sometimes we don't even realize what's happening to us. You know, let's say we start becoming indifferent, complacent, apathetic. You know the word apathetic? You know where it comes from? A Greek word. Pathos means emotion. When you put an A in front of the word in Greek, it means no or anti. And so it's against. So we have anti-Christ. It's, or, you know, that's the idea of this A in front of the, the thing. It's negating what the word says. So, you know, when you have pathos, you have apathy. Apathy means no passion, no emotion. And so the Christian life is designed to have emotion. Did you realize that? It's designed to have passions. Matter of fact, relationships are designed to have emotion and a measure of passion in them. And when we lose those things, you know, we get concerned about our relationship because there's no emotion, there's no passion. What's going on here? There's just indifference, apathy, complacency. And those are dangerous signals that something's not right in the relationship. And I think we've all had experiences of this magnitude or this situation in our lives. So when this starts happening, this is actually destructive to our souls. And so 
The most important thing at that point is have somebody say, hey, warning. Some, somehow we have to experience a corrective or a warning. And, uh, and so pain may get, be involved in that. How many know when somebody's dying of a heart attack, or having a heart attack, sorry, we're having a heart attack, and the medical guys rush up and they put these paddles on this person, you know? And then what do they do? They shoot. It's kind of an electric current going in the body. And you see these guys, they're not even worried about hurting the person. How many know that? At that point, they're just trying to cause life to happen. So they get over this person, boom! And immediately there's a jolt and the body bounces. I mean, we've all seen that, right? And hopefully it starts life back up again because if they don't, that person's going to expire. And they know that. And so sometimes we have to have, you know, depending on where we're at in our relationship with God, I mean, God's going to use varying degrees of what, what I call the meter to get our attention, you know, the paddle to really get our attention that maybe we need to have, we're losing life and we need to have life restored inside of our lives. And so as we come to this seventh church now, you know, and seven really is a very significant number in the Bible. It speaks of completion. So now we're looking at the church here. We've looked at six other churches in Asia Minor, which is present day Turkey. And we looked at the last church, which Jesus had nothing negative to say. He only commended that church, and he was encouraging that church. But now we come to the only church where Jesus has nothing good to say. Scary, isn't it? And the, the thing that's really interesting, this church gets a severe rebuke by Jesus, but he also gives the most tender and encouraging word of promise if they'll respond. Isn't that neat? And so I want to look at this church at Laodiceo. And, and the reason I want to look at it, well, first of all, it's part of our series, but the main reason is this church probably reflects the North American culture more than any other church. And I think we have to be more aware of some of the challenges this church was faced with because you and I are living in that culture where we're faced with similar things. And that's why I think it's important. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 14. Now, what we're going to discover is that when Jesus was uh, speaking to John to write the letter to have the pastor of that church say the message, you know, at that time, Laodicea was noted for three things. Number one, it was a thriving banking center. Number two, it was famous for its textiles particularly that glossy black wool which was woven into some of the finest garments and it was absolutely in great demand in the Roman Empire. And number three, it just outside the city was one of the great medical centers or facilities known for its pharmaceutical compounds in treating different kinds of disorders, but particularly those with hearing and vision problems. So they had a lot of positive things happening in their community. So this was a thriving economically booming, prosperous, affluent community. It was on the main trade route between Rome and the East, and these people were just flourishing economically. Okay? Now, I'm going to say this. Affluence is always a challenge to our faith. Not that God is against money. He's not against money. What God is against is us relying on money rather than relying on God. You see the distinct difference? So, but it's a temptation. And I think we have to be aware of it. And that's what I'm trying to bring out. So, here they were. 
And they're located in this beautiful valley called the Lycus Valley in the province of Phrygia. And there's, it's kind of like a tri-city area. You have three cities there, Herapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Now, Colossae, we have a book in the New Testament called the Colossians. That was written to the church at the city of Colossae. But now we have, they were so close together that Paul even said when he was writing to the Colossians, hey, have the church at Laodicea read this letter. So they were circulating these letters because they were close by and they were reading them together and they were learning together. Now, this community was also very ethnically diverse and they had to learn how to live together. And so accommodation was at the heart of their economic success. But that same spirit also pervaded the life of the church. And what do I mean by accommodation? Well, you know, sometimes to, to live together in unity and harmony, what do we have to do? Especially in a marriage, we have to do what? We have to accommodate. We have to make compromises. That's a good thing. See, I'm going to just say this. Accommodation and compromise can be a good thing and it also can be a bad thing. In other words, there's an upside to it and a downside to it. And I think that's true of most things in life. There's an upside to it and a downside to it. So the upside is that we learn how to get along with people. Accommodation means we can work well together. Those are all positive things. But, you know, when we start accommodating and compromising our Christian values and our understanding of what does it mean to be a Christian and what God requires of us, then we're in trouble. That's the downside of accommodating, okay? So if the culture is, a, you know, is, is, a, is an opposition to some of God's value system, which, by the way, our culture is, then we have to be careful we're not accommodating it. Because if we're accommodating that, then we're going to become problematic Spiritually, we're going to have issues. We're going to have difficulties having a passionate, vibrant, life-changing faith. And so I will frame it this way. You know, if you look at our culture today and some of its values, and then you look at the Bible and some of its values, I've got to ask the question, as a church, where are we at? Are we accommodating to the culture? Or are we standing for what God says and being salt and light to the culture so that we're influencing the culture to what's right? Or is the culture seducing the church to embrace its value system so that no, we have no essential value and purpose in the culture? And that, that's always a temptation that every church faces, right? Because we want to be able to connect. We want to be able to relate. We want to be able to understand and be understood. Those are all important things. But we can't accommodate and change the message. You see the difference? You know? And I'll give you an example. You know, some people can move on a journey. I'll pick on one. You know, Rob Bell, because he's publicly saying things, I can say that. You know, he wrote a book called Love Wins. And so it caused a little fervor in the church because, you know, Rob Bell basically said, you know, the church needs to focus on loving people. And I agree with that. We need to love people. But we can't accommodate, you know, the value structure of the culture. In his mind, love means never saying anything bad about anybody else or never rebuking or never correcting or never disagreeing. Folks, sometimes we have to disagree with people, not in a malicious, mean, and intolerant way, but we have to disagree because, listen, what they're doing is not right. And what they're doing is damaging to themselves. You know, a lot of people that are doing the wrong thing, they want everyone to agree with them, but it's not going to help them. You know, if you're doing something that's destructive to your life and you want people to agree with you, that's not helping you. And that's not loving you. That's destroying you. 
You need to know the truth because it's the truth that sets you free. Okay, let me move on here to take a look at this uh, church at Laodicea. One of the subtle temptations of an affluent society is that we become self-reliant. That is a major problem because what's, what's the opposite of self-reliance is learning to trust on God and to trust in a community. But you know what happens when you're self-reliant? You don't trust in anybody. You don't trust in God and you don't, help, you don't look to other people. You're just doing your own thing. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it all by, all by myself. That's a problem. And self-reliance is a hindrance really to our spiritual development. So let's take a look at the things that Jesus wants to say to a church that I've called compromised. The church that has accommodated to the culture. So what does he want to say to us? Well, I think that there's four things he wants to say. And the first thing is he wants to reveal to us his character. He's saying, this is what you need to be like. This is who I am. This is where you need to understand. This is, this is where you need to stand. You need to understand your position. And, you know, Jesus now is looking at this church, and this is interesting to me, they have a wrong assessment of who they are. They think they're doing great, and Jesus goes, no, you're not doing great. Now, here's the sad part. You know, you could be, let's say you're a little kid, you're in school, and you're going, man, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. You know, and then you take your test and you get a big F, you know. And you're going, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. You know, and I'm going, yeah, but you've got a problem here. You're not learning, and you're not understanding. That's an issue, you see. And, if, you know, and in our culture today, we just say, don't bother them. Just let them believe that they're great. Yeah, but they're not learning. They're not understanding. They're failing. You know, do you just keep lying to them that they're great? Do you just keep telling them it's all going to be okay? Or do you leave, let them live in a delusion? Or do you say to them, listen, the reason why we gave you this test was that you would understand that there's things you need to learn. And you're not learning them. And I want to help you learn. So here, you know, Jesus calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness in verse 14. He says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So Jesus is now identifying who he is. Now that word amen, it means, you know, it also means beginning. It also means the source of things. It means it's, it's, it's the truth. It's veracity. It's, you know, this, this idea of the true witness. You know, truth is interpreted by two Greek words, but one of them, and the one that's used here, is the word genuine or authentic. Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm genuine. I'm authentic. And I'm the one that's in charge of the creation, God's creation. I'm in charge of it. And what you need to understand is, like the, the previous church at Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but in Philadelphia in the ancient world. This church of brotherly love, and they did have brotherly love. They were very effective at communicating the gospel. But the church at Laodicea had no witness. They were not being faithful and they were not being truthful. They were not communicating what God wanted them to communicate. Because let's face it, one of the reasons why God gives us his spirit is so that we become witnesses. Right? It says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high in order to be witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So God wants us to be faithful 
reflectors of the nature of God to people. Then we're a witness to people. We're showing them the truth. We're showing them reality. We're showing them what love really is and not this false, wishy-washy, accommodating, everything goes. By the way, that's not love. That's what our culture thinks love is, but that's not love. Love is truthful. Love, love sacrifices on behalf of other people. Love is willing to take risks and be misunderstood. I'm just telling you, love is a lot different than what our culture thinks it is. So here this church was not a true and faithful witness of Christ. They were self-absorbed. They were caught up in the good life at the expense of the rich life that's found only in Christ. Isn't that true? And I think a lot of Christians today are living a good life, but they're not living the best life. The best life is really seriously following Christ and serving him. So what is significant of Jesus calling himself the Amen? Well, Grant Osborne writes, Jesus used this not so much to direct attention to his divinity, that means his godness, but to his authority to speak for God as the messenger of God. It emphasizes the truthfulness and divine origin of the message. And here we see that Jesus is revealing the scope of his power. It says he calls himself the ruler of God's creation. Uh, in their wealth and complacency, these Laodiceans thought of themselves as in control. Jesus is telling them that he alone is in control of all creation. He's the very source of their wealth and their power. And I'll just stop and pause here for a minute and just explain something to us so we, we all understand it. Do you know all of your abilities, gifts, opportunities, resources, your health, your energy, all of that stuff comes from God? Everything comes from God. And God can stop it in a moment. He can put an end to everything tomorrow for you. So if you and I think that we're doing all of this, we're deceiving ourselves. It could all end very fast. And it does end for some people very quickly. An injury, a job loss, you know, we lose someone we love. Our whole life changes overnight. And so what I'm trying to get across to us is there's a myth in our minds that somehow we're in control. Can I just pop that myth out of your head? You and I are in control of nothing. Sorry. I know it's a little bit disillusioning for some of you. You think you're running things. You're not running a thing. God is in control. And, you know, if you have a good life, you should be on your face before God saying, Lord, thank you for this amazing life. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And he not only gives that to people that are serving him, God even does that to the ungodly. God is the one that causes it to rain and to shine on both groups of people. God is filled with love towards humanity. We need to understand that. That's the way he is. Let me move on to the second thing. It's about a word of correction. I think the, probably the saddest thing about this story is the way they see themselves and the way Jesus sees them. And it's totally the opposite. I mean, how many have ever seen, you know, they do Canadian Idol, American Idol, and they get somebody up there to sing, but they can't do it? Do you know what I mean? And why they do that is to make, you know, a, in a sense, a fool of them, right? And people are supposed to laugh. I hate that because it's always done at the expense of that person. But let's face it, some people just don't have a nice voice. And this unfortunate part is they think they do. That's really scary, right? You know? But there's other people who have a great voice and they think they don't have a good voice. You know, and then they don't use their voice. And that's sad too, right? Those are two extremes. 
But, you know, it's really sad when you and I have a wrong estimation of who we really are. Because God is the one that's really looking at us and going, this is what you're really like. How many would rather, you know, take it on the chin and say, okay, God, just show me what I'm like. And if we've got some improvement to do, let's work on it. I think that's the healthy way to live life. I'm, I'm open to God saying, okay, we've got to change this. And we go, okay, we've got to change that. He says, I know your deeds in verse 15, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Notice that doesn't say that in your translation, but literally that's what the Greek is saying. You know, sometimes the translators, to be polite, put nice things in. But Jesus says, you make me sick. Okay, now here's a bad interpretation of this text, and I've even heard it preached. I would that you were hot or cold. Now, some people say, well, I wish that you were either red hot, passionate for God, or better to be not even serving God at all. Wrong interpretation. Let's understand the context. What is the context? There were three cities in the Lycus Valley. At Colossae, they had beautiful, cool, refreshing water. How many, on a hot day, there's nothing like a cold glass of water? Isn't that great? You know, then, then you go to Herapolis, and some of us that went to Turkey were there. It's actually a hot springs. Remember, Patty, we were walking along, and there was kind of a little mountainous area, and you're walking through the stuff, and you could feel the hot springs. And how many know hot springs have a medicinal purpose to the body? And so people go to hot springs to, to be, you know, to deal with rheumatism and all the aches and pains, and you're sitting in the hot springs. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, you know, the problem in, in Laodicea was that they had a bad water condition. They were, you know, the Romans would actually build aqueducts. How I many know that's true? And they'd have pipes in there, and they have water going down, and they went, you know, to the city of uh, Laodicea here. But by the time the hot springs water came down, it was now lukewarm, Okay. And what happened was it had minerals in it and when you drank it, it made you want to throw up, okay? So the people there knew that water was a bad problem in that community, you know, because you know, some communities they have upsides and downsides. Well, this was their downside. They just had bad water, putrid water. It made, them, made people sick, made them want to throw up. So Jesus uses this analogy. He says, you know, I would that you either had cold, refreshing water or this really hot water that would have medicinal purposes, but your water is sickening, just like you guys. That's what you're like. You're like your water system. You guys are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Wow, that's not very flattering. How many say that's not flattering? God, you're not always flattering. You know, he's giving them an illustration of their behavior. Wow, that's powerful. Well, so he's now correcting them. So then he, then he evaluates their deeds here in verse 17. I'm going to skip a little bit, but I can do that. You're not missing anything. Just Okay, the wrong assessment. Look at verse 17. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But don't you realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? Now how can you be that wrong? How can you be that wrong about what you are and what God sees you are. Is that scary? How many think that's kind of bad? Can I just tell you, that's what happens with sin. Here's what I'm going to say about sin. This is what I've discovered. When I was not a Christian, I didn't think of myself as a bad person. Most non-Christians don't see themselves as bad people. Right? I'm okay. I'm a pretty nice guy. I don't kill people, you know, right? Right? Isn't that how people see themselves? You, you ask the average person, hey, 
I don't kill people. You know, I try to help people out once in a while, you know. But I was selfish to the core. It was all about me, right? I'm just being honest. That's what it was. When I became a Christian, I was under conviction that, you know, there were things in my life that were wrong. I started to see some of the areas that needed to change in my life, and I was under tremendous conviction of my sinfulness. And I needed a Savior, and I came to Christ, and I received forgiveness. And you know what's been spooky ever since? That the closer I get to God, it's like walking in the light. You know, if you're in the dark, you don't see a lot. But the more you're in the light, the more things you see. And the closer you get to God, what starts happening is you see yourself as you really are and you go, wow, I really am a stinker. You know, I've got issues. And the closer you get to God, the more you see yourself as a sinner and the less you sin. But when I was a person that wasn't serving Christ, I just was in the dark. So I didn't see anything wrong with me and the more I sinned. I didn't see I was a sinner and the more I sinned. But now that I know that I'm a a child of God and I'm walking with God, I'm going, wow, the closer I get to you, Lord, the more I realize there's things that you have to keep working on inside of me, the more I see it. Is that amazing or what? These guys couldn't see what was wrong with them. And that's what happens when you and I move away from being close to God. We develop a wrong assessment of our true spiritual condition. How many go, that's scary. Is that scary? Because, I mean, think about it. If you went to the doctor and you had a physical problem, you went to the doctor and they misdiagnosed you, how many here would be a little bit upset? How many might be a little upset? Especially if it jeopardized your life. And I'm going to argue with you today nicely, but I'll say this. You and I can have wrong assessments of where we're really at in the Christian life, and it's detrimental to us. But we don't even see it. We don't even get it. You know? Uh, Let me just move on here. So Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's interesting. He says this, and I'll, 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 I'll step back one. He said, you know, when you say that you're rich and you've acquired wealth and you don't need anything, what you're really saying is, I don't need anybody. I'm self-reliant. And the spirit of self-reliant so marked the community at Laodicea that the same earthquake that happened in Philadelphia, that they had to have help from Rome, The same earthquake in Laodicea said, don't bother helping us. We have enough resources to do it ourselves. We're self-reliant. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, revival then encourages us to pray. It also delivers us from any and every form of self-reliance, which is the curse of the church. Wow. Why is self-reliance the curse of the church? Because then you don't trust God. And the biggest problem in North America today is that the church does not trust God. That's our biggest problem. You see, when I go to India and people have nothing and they don't have food enough to eat and they don't have doctors to go see and all the things that we just take for granted, you know what starts happening? You've got to start praying. And you've got to start praying because if it don't happen, you're not going to get better. And so you start praying in a totally different way. How many know that if you have no other recourse but God, you pray a lot differently than if you think, well, I'll just go see the doctor. Or I'll just go to the bank and borrow some money. But if you can't do that, you're going to start praying a lot differently. When you and I are in a crisis, we start praying a lot differently because we recognize we have a need. And that's why self-reliance is such a detrimental thing. And it breeds complacency in our lives. And it breeds 
apathy in our life and it breeds indifference in our life because, you know, when, we, when, we, when things are going good for ourselves, we start, you know, insulating ourselves and we move away from the people that are really hurting. And then we don't see the needs anymore and then we are very content to just do with whatever we want with because we don't see things anymore. But I'll tell you, one of the ways to move away from indifference and apathy is to actually move towards people that are hurting and needy. And I'll tell you what will happen. It'll start breaking your heart. And it should break your heart. And you'll move away from indifference and apathy. And that's an important thing. Let me move on to the third thing. Uh, simply a word of counsel. So what, do we, what needs to be done? What advice did Jesus give that needs to be followed? Rather than look to themselves and be self-reliant, they needed to come to him for the spiritual riches, clothing, and healing. Now, it's interesting how Jesus says it, verse 18. He always takes what their, their community is about and then zeroes in on it. He says, Now I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. In other words, he says, you guys are poor. This is how you become rich. Buy gold tried in fire. And white clothes to wear. What were they wearing? The black garments, remember? Because they were known for that. So you can wear white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. So what Jesus is saying is even though you've got these beautiful clothes on, spiritually you guys are naked. I'm going to give you something that you can cover yourself. And that's what righteousness does. Righteousness is like a robe that covers us. Jesus says, I'm going to give you righteousness. Then he goes on to say here, uh, and I'm going to put, and put salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Isn't that kind of a takeoff? Here they have this, you know, this beautiful medical institution that's actually putting that stuff on people's eyes so they can see. Jesus goes, no, you guys aren't seeing. You're spiritually blind. I'm going to give you the stuff that helps you to see. So he's playing on their community's elements. He's zeroing in on this stuff and he's pointing out to them. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this gold refined in fire? You're going to love this. Um, you know, Peter talks this way in First Peter. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. Now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. So what's being refined by fire? It's not gold. It's faith. And how does our faith get refined? Through trial. And so what he's basically saying, I'll bring trials into your life. I'll bring trials into your life so I can refine your life. Some of you go, I don't like these trials. You know, I don't like these troubles. I don't like these problems. And yet we have the wrong attitude. We need to see trouble as God's refining instrument in our life. How many say, God, I want you to work on me. I want you to change me. I want to I become more like you. I want to I have the attributes and characteristics of God. God says, fine, I'll do it. You know, we come up to God, God, make me more like you. I surrender all. You know, make me more like you kind of thing, you know. And God says, good, I'll do it. Okay, what trial should I send next week? Some of you go, really? That's mean, pastor. You know what? Because James says, count it all joy when all of these trials come upon you. See, I think we have the wrong thinking about trouble. We see trials and trouble the wrong way. You say, well, how should I see them? Opportunity. Every time a trial comes my way in a trouble... I should say to myself, wow, what an opportunity for God to work. Right? Isn't that how you guys handle it? 
you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not like the Israelites that camped by the Red Sea. They, you know, they saw this big problem, this army marching down on them, and they're all hollering and carrying on. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. You know, I've got family members that are emotional like that, and they can get into a high drama. I can't even imagine poor Moses and the high drama that was happening with these people around him screaming, We're going to die! Shut up! That's actually what he said. Stop! Right? He said, Be still and see God's opportunity. And what happened? Red Sea parted. They walked through on dry ground, it says. They got on the other side. This huge military machine rolled right into the Red Sea. Waters parted. Waters came back. Drowned them all. These guys didn't even have to fight. After they got on the other side of the Red Sea, little dance. Woo! You know, on the one side of the Red Sea, we're all going to die. You know, the other side, woo-hoo, thank you, Jesus. You know, I think we're kind of like those guys. Trial comes. Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. God gets us to the trial. Who oh, praise God. Isn't that right? I think so. <clears throat> so now we read here. It says, those I love, I rebuke, and I discipline. Wow. We're going to get to that point. Let me move on, because I'm running out of time. I'm going to my fourth point. A word of comfort. You know, how many know when you correct a child, the most important thing you do right afterward is comfort them? How many know that? So now you've disciplined them. Now you have to reassure them that you love them, because discipline doesn't feel like love. How many go, I get that. Discipline does not feel like love. But discipline is love. Okay? How many believe discipline is love? I got my hand up. Discipline is love. Those that don't have your hand up, you have an unhealthy parenting model. (laughs) You don't understand it. You know, I'm doing a study right now. I'm reading two books on one word in Hebrew. Has said. Now, do you know anything about I, you know, I've, I'm learning so much about language. You know, when you, just even an English word could have many meanings. How many know that's true? You go to the dictionary, you look up, wow, 11 meanings for this one word. You know, that's called a semantic range. And you know, we read an article and we see this word show up. And how do we know what that one word means? Because there's 11 meanings. How do you actually know what that word should mean there? The context tells you what it means, Right? I hate it when people say, well, the Greek says and the Hebrew says, and they're taking it out of context. Yeah, that's a semantic range, but that's not what it means in that text. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, so you can't, you know, all you word study freaks, be careful. There's semantic range. Don't make it say something it's not saying in that context. Follow? Everybody get that? So I'm studying has said there's a big semantic range so I'm trying to figure it out and you know the Bible uses this word and then translators have to come up and figure out okay which semantic range word I mean what are we going to put in here you know like has said what does it mean it's it means loving kindness it means faithful faithfulness God's mercy grace I like this word grace but you know what it also means discipline God's discipline. I'm, I'm reading, I'm studying the book of Hosea right now. Do you know that God disciplined his people? 
Big time. They went into captivity. Terrible discipline. A whole generation missed out because they were not paying attention. They got in trouble. God will discipline us, guys. And it's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us. It's his has said. So here's a picture of Jesus. This is Holman Hunt's very famous painting. It's called Light of the World. You know what? It's interesting. He's painted this picture and he's got it right because there's something missing in this picture. And you know what it is? There's no handle on the door. How many notice there's no handle on this door? And what is Jesus doing? He's knocking. And in, Ro- in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, this is the verse I'm looking at right now, what does it say? He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He says, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Wow. So what is Jesus doing? He's knocking. But who is this written to? It's written to the church. See, we use this sometimes for non-believers. We say, you know, you've got to open the door of your life, and that's all true. But this is actually written to the church. So where is Jesus in this church? He's on the outside. How many think that's amazing? Jesus is on the outside of his own church, and he's knocking, trying to get back in. How many think that's weird? That reminds me of the Fred Flintstones cartoon. Remember with that, you know... He had that lion, you know, and then he puts him out, and then the lion jumps back in, and Flintstone is outside, and then he's banging on the door to get back in. It's, he's banging on the door to get back into his own house. And, you know, that's an absolutely profound picture. The light of the world. So if the light of the world is on the outside, what's happening on the inside? Oh, you guys are smart. Darkness. And, you know, when you're in the dark, you don't see correctly. Right? So these guys said, you know, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. Jesus goes, no, you're not. You're blind. You're naked. You're poor. You're the opposite of what you think you are. Yeah, but we're Christians. Yeah, but Jesus says, I'm on the outside. I want in. I'm knocking. Any man hears my voice and opens the door. Who has to open the door? Yeah, because there's no handle on the outside. If any man opens the door, what will Jesus do? I'm going to come in. What's going to happen when he comes in? Oh, he's going to have supper with us. I'm going to have supper with you. So, this is a picture of Christ graciously seeking to regain his presence and prominence in the Laodicean church. And so the Greeks, because this is a Greek-influenced culture, normally ate three meals. Breakfast consisted of dry bread dipped in wine. The noon meal involved a picnic snack eaten along the way, but the evening meal served as the main meal. Christ promised the evening meal to, to the Laodicean. He said, I'll come in and have supper with you. Christ offers this full meal and the fellowship experience that went with it to the beggarly Laodiceans who were suffering from spiritual malnutrition. Now, I didn't say this to you, but you know the word has said also has to do with a meal. Isn't that amazing? You know, remember the story? A couple of, you know, how many know that in the ancient world, hospitality is way up there? Way up there. I mean, you know, you read the story of Lot and the angels that came and he took them in his home. How many think it was kind of a weird story? Because, you know, when the guys wanted to rape the the angels, remember that? Lot's willing to send his daughters out there. How many go, it's a weird story. Anybody can, how many think, I can't even relate to that story? Come on now. Anybody relate to that story? I can't even, isn't that weird? Do you know why it's so weird to us? Because we don't have that cultural mindset. 
Here's the cultural mindset. Hospitality was a sacred thing. The moment I brought someone into my house means that I'm in a covenant relationship with them. I'm obligated to protect them. I'm obligated to protect them. Hesed is a form of obligation. That's powerful. So love has a deep commitment, covenant, loyalty, faithfulness issue to it that we don't even grasp as a culture. That's why I'm studying this stuff because I'm going, wow, this is like outside of my scope of thinking. This is not how our culture thinks, right? Send my daughter out there instead of these strangers. Man, I don't even relate to that. But that's how Lot was wired. He understood this element. And then, you know, the, the guests were obligated to take care of the host. It's a mutual obligation. What is Jesus saying here? He says, listen, I'm going to come in and I'm going to have supper with you. But this is a deeper concept. It's an idea of fellowship. The idea of a relationship a depth of relationship where the light comes into our lives and God's grace comes into our lives and there's a fullness in our lives. And you know, a lot of Christians in North America are not living a full Christian life. They have an intellectual understanding of Christianity, but unless we open the door and let Jesus come into our lives and be at the control of our lives, at the center of our lives, and you say, how do you know when he's there? We have passion in our lives. And we're sharing the light of God's love with other people. And if we're not doing that, we're probably apathetic, indifferent. And we're not, we're not impacting people around us. And so the question I raise is, where do you think the church is at in North America? Is the culture impacting the church? Or is the church impacting the culture? What do you think? I think, on the general speaking, not, not to every person, I think the culture is impacting the church. We're accommodating. When in reality is, we need to be the ones impacting the culture. And the only way you can do that is if you have passion. You can't be lukewarm. You see it? So I'm going to have a stand and I'm going to close real quickly here. With every head bowed, I want to just ask the question. I believe today that there's some of you in this room, you know what? You're passionate. You love Christ. He's, he's at the center of your life. You're doing exactly what God wants you to do. It's amazing. Great. Yay. I know that that's true because I'm your pastor. I know some of you. You're just so excited about your faith. You're so excited about serving God. You've put Christ first. He's preeminent in your life. You're, you're salty. You've got light going. You're impacting. You're influencing other people. But there's other people in this room. God's speaking to you today. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking. I'm not here to criticize or judge. I'm just here to point out. You know where you're at. Are you indifferent, complacent, apathetic? You lack passion? You go, well, Pastor, if you knew how busy it was. See, that's a problem. I believe busyness is a form of escapism. Maybe we're too busy. Maybe we have to say to God, what is it in my life that you need to etch out? What is it in my life that will give me, get me excited about serving you? If I don't have a passion for Christ this morning... He's probably on the outside. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying he's speaking to you like he's speaking to this church. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. See, that is written to Christians, folks. That's not written to non-believers. The context is the church. He's writing to a church. And he's saying, I'm standing at your heart door today. And if you hear my voice, he says, do something. You have to do something. What do you have to do? You've got to open that door. 
You've got to invite Jesus to come into your life. And you've got to enter into a relationship with Him that is so sweet, a fellowship with Him. Well, this is the primary relationship. Listen to what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these other things are added to you. If God is not first in your life, you're compromised. And you're accommodating. And you're living a defeated life. And you don't have the peace and the joy that the Spirit of God wants to bring into your life. But you're here today saying, you know what? God is speaking to me right now. And I'm tired of living that way. And I want to put Jesus the very heart and center of my life. And I want to experience the joy and the peace and the delight of walking with Him. With every head bowed. I'm not here to embarrass anybody, but God is speaking to you this morning. That's you. Just raise your hand really high. Just, I'm going to pray for you right now. Raise your hand. God is speaking to your heart this morning saying, You know what? I want, I want to change, Pastor. I want to let Jesus in my life. I want to open the door of my heart. I want Christ to come in and fellowship with Him. I want Him to become all in all in my life. I want to be a light to a darkened world. I want to be salt in a world that's corroding and decaying. It's corrupt. It's broken. It's unhealthy. I don't want to just go along with where everybody else is at. I want to be able to stand up at my place of work and say, you know, and saying in such a truthful and loving way, you know what you're saying there sounds really loving, but it's not. It's enabling. It's destructive. You're letting people remain in their broken condition. You're telling them it's okay to be like this, when in reality it's destroying them. What they really need is someone to say, you know what, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to stop being in rebellion against God. You need to surrender to Him. And then you will have deliverance. And then you will have joy. Then you will have hope like you've never had it before. So let's pray today. Let's open our hearts to Christ. He's knocking. And if we'll open our hearts to Him this morning, He'll come flooding in, believe me, and give us the power and the passion and the persuasion and the grace, and the hope, and the courage. We need courage today, don't we? To do the right thing. In a time when there's so much, you know, people are just not courageous today. They're all afraid. Well, I don't want to be afraid. I want to be courageous. I want to stand for Christ in a world gone crazy. So Lord, we pray today. We say, Lord, we open the door of our heart we ask You to come in and fellowship with us. Lord, we pray that whatever is in our life that is impeding the work of grace, that is slowing down our passion and our vitality for You, whatever it is, Lord, put Your finger on it. And Lord, by Your grace, help us to remove it and to allow You to be at the center of our lives. And we thank You for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.